facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome to the holiest season in the church's liturgical year, the Sacred Triduum. I'm Kale Clark. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. So glad you're with me today. Oh, why not give me a call right now? 888-914-9149. Friendly voice. Patrick Alog will pick up that phone call. 888-914-9149. You can also email the show. Kale, C-A-L-E at RelevantRadio.com. It's great to hear show topics, things you want me to talk about, any questions that you might have, things that you liked, things that you don't like, maybe things we could try to do better. Always open to hearing from you. Kale, C-A-L-E at RelevantRadio.com. And also, you can reach me on Twitter. You can tweet at me, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And the show account is at Kale Clark Show. Well, obviously, uh, all, all throughout the day here on Relevant Radio, we've been talking about Holy Thursday. It's also known as Maundy Thursday in some circles. and not always so well known by that name in Catholic circles, but Maundy Thursday has to do with the mandatum, the commandment a new commandment that I give you. And the commandment, of course, that Jesus gives is to, number one, love one another. But of course, there's also the commandment to celebrate the Eucharist, which is instituted on this day, Holy Thursday, the first one, because the Last Supper was, of course, the first Mass. So one of the things that Holy Thursday is all about is celebrating the priesthood. Yesterday, we talked a little bit about the laity and their mission in the world. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about the priesthood. And I specifically want to focus today on something that it's not talked about enough. It's it's people are focusing on the institution of the Eucharist, and rightly so. But you might have noticed in your gospel reading, and if you look at the readings for tonight's Mass of the Lord's Supper, you see that it comes from John chapter 13. And in John's gospel, there is no institution of the Eucharist. Now it's in the other three, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in John's Gospel, in John chapter 13, he focuses on something completely different, which is the foot-washing scene where Jesus washes the feet of the apostles. Now, that has been a subject of a lot of contention in recent years in the church. Back in 2016, Pope Francis made a change to the Roman Missal, which allowed for the feet of women to be washed uh, alongside uh, those of men. And I'm not here to get into that. I'm sure you guys all have your hot takes on that, for sure. But uh, that, that's not the purpose of why I bring that up. I, I think the controversy surrounding this has made us lose sight of why Jesus did it in the first place. And it's more than about just showing a humble act of service. In fact, there's a bit of a secret to the foot washing, which I want to share with you tonight. And I think John's gospel has the clue here. So we're going to toe the line here, and I'll try not to stick my foot in my mouth as we talk about the foot washing in John, because it, it reveals a, a really important truth for us and, and for the church. And there used to be a blog I, I liked to read years ago, and it was, re- I don't know what ever happened to this guy, but his name was Jacob Michael. And he wrote this blog called Lumen Gentleman, which I thought was a cool name. I love puns. And of course, that's a reference to one of the documents of Vatican II, which is Lumen Gentium, which is the document on the church uh, from Vatican II. It's a great document. So Jacob Michael had this blog called Lumen Gentleman, which which was a great name, and 
And he, he wrote a great essay some years ago about this, about the foot washing and what really might have been going on here. And so let me, let me just deal with, before we get into this, the, the whole concept of why John is a different animal. John's gospel is different. In fact, there's even a book called Why John is Different. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you read John, totally different material uh, in some cases, and a totally different perspective. And why is that? Why is that? Well, even going back through church history, a lot of the church fathers talked about uh, why it was different. And uh, Eusebius, there's a guy named Eusebius who lived in the 3rd and 4th century, and he wrote a history of the church at that time. And Eusebius uh, wrote about why John is a bit, you know, uh, off the beaten track. And here's what he said. He said, quote, When Mark and Luke had already published their Gospels, They say that John, who had employed all his time in proclaiming the gospel orally, that is, he was was obviously spending a lot of time preaching, evangelizing, John finally proceeded to write for the following reason. The three gospels already mentioned, and that's, of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, having come into the hands of all and into his own, too. They say that he accepted them and bore witness to their truthfulness but that there was lacking in them an account of the deeds done by Christ at the beginning of his ministry. They say, therefore, that the Apostle John, being asked to do it for this reason, gave in his gospel an account of the period which had been omitted by the earlier evangelists and of the deeds done by the Savior during that period. That is, of course, those which were done before the imprisonment of the Baptist. End of quote. So, obviously, uh, Eusebius is saying that John knew about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, he thought they were great. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is the gospel tr- truth, quite literally. And John, you know, if John the Apostle was, in fact, the author of John's gospel, the author is never really identified in the gospel, by the way. It says the gospel of John, of course, uh, in your Bible. But uh, the manuscripts, uh, that, that, according to John, that's not, that's not part of the sacred text. But most people... I would say most people throughout history think that John the Apostle wrote it. He never refers to himself by name as, Hi, I'm John, but he does say he's the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple. And he's very close to Jesus, the beloved disciple all through the gospel. He's there when the others run away at the end. He leans up close to Jesus at the Last Supper. Hey, tell me about who's going to betray you. Tell me a little bit more of the inside scoop. He's the faithful disciple. He's always there. He's at the foot of the cross with Our Lady. And so, most people think it is John. Some have even said, maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's Lazarus. I, I, even, I think I even wrote something about that years ago when I was in grad school. <laughs> I've changed my mind about that. But I never, I never thought Lazarus was the guy. But I thought, maybe it could be. Some people have posited that. But most people think it's John. So, John, being an apostle, he would say, yeah, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are legit. But I want to add a different flavor here. I want to add something that hasn't been there before. And I want to talk about maybe some stuff that isn't in the other Gospels, stuff Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry, before John the Baptist was put into prison. And we also, let me go back to Eusebius again, uh, the author of the History of the Church, which was written in the 4th century. here's, Here's another thing that Eusebius said. He said, quote, As Peter preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the Gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time, and remembered his sayings, should write them out. 
And so that, that's really what the Gospel of Mark is all about. It's really the preaching of St. Peter. Mark wrote it down. Mark was a companion of St. Peter and of Paul, too. But Mark wrote down Peter's preaching, his, his, his message, and that became the Gospel of Mark. So I guess you could really say that it's the true Gospel of Peter. There is another, uh, there's an apocryphal gospel, which is kind of crazy, called the Gospel of Peter. It involves a talking cross coming out of the tomb. It's it's really bizarre stuff, not historical, based on the other gospels that are real. I'll uh, we'll talk about that maybe after Easter. But it says, and having composed the gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. That's Gospel of Mark. When Peter learned of this, he neither directly forbade nor encouraged it. But last of all, John perceiving that the external facts had been made had been made plain in the gospel being urged by his friends and inspired by the spirit composed a spiritual gospel this is the account of clement and this is clement of alexandria he, he used to say this so okay so that he says that john is last okay and most scholars think yeah john wrote last after the other three and that John kind of wanted to write a spiritual gospel and when you the symbol for john's gospel is the eagle you know how all the evangelists have a symbol Luke is the ox. Um, he's got the manger scene. Maybe that's why there's a lot of theories on this. Well, John is the eagle. And the reason why John is the eagle is because he has a very, very high theology. He gives you the heavenly perspective on earthly events. There's a lot of depth to John, a lot of height to John as well, heavenly heights. And it's a, it's a kind of gospel that uh, no matter how long you've been in the faith, you can get a deeper insight every single time that you read it. So that's, that's a bit of why John is different. So that, that, that difference in John certainly extends to when he's talking about what happened at the last supper. He's like, the other guys have the institution of the Eucharist covered. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about, (coughs) excuse me. I want to talk about the foot washing. And so I think, I think it has a lot to do with ordination, with the sacrament of holy orders, with the priesthood, and when you look at look at it really, really closely, and this is what Jacob Michael did in his essay, there's a lot of allusions that, that make this really, really clear. But if you're not familiar with the biblical text, especially if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, it's not necessarily going to come through to you. I talked about this uh, just a smidgen earlier today uh, on The Faith Explained. We had a special hour-long episode called The Truth of the Tritium. It talked about uh, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, through the lens of history, did this stuff really happen? And also through the Bible, what does it really mean? And if you missed that, you can check the podcast, you can stream it, you can download it. And it's also going to air again tomorrow, so uh, check that out. So I did talk about it just a little bit uh, earlier today, but I'm going to give you much more right now because uh, there's a lot of richness to this. So let, let's look at what you're going to hear tonight at the Mass of the Lord's Supper. Let's look at John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what's the backdrop here? The feast of Passover. There's a liturgy here that's going on here. And a lot of people think that John the Apostle, who wrote the who wrote the Gospel, came from the high priestly family. He was somehow related to the high priest. How do we know this? Well, for one thing, he gets Peter into the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus is on trial. That's when he's warming himself by the fire. How does he get so close? Well, John's gospel basically says John got him in there. He's like, he knows somebody. And and so there's this theory that he's really, really good 
on the liturgy and, and the, the old covenant priesthood, and he applies it to Jesus. He understands this. And so Passover, by the way, and you say, well, hey, why doesn't John talk about the Eucharist? Why doesn't he talk about the institution of the Eucharist? Well, he kind of already did that in his gospel in a different way. If you go back to chapter 6, the famous bread of life discourse, or when Jesus teaches about the Eucharist at the synagogue in Capernaum, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or else you have no life within you. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, John 6, 51. That's kind of the key verse, but the whole chapter is amazing. When did that take place? It took place at Passover time, maybe about a year before the actual Last Supper happened. So he predicts the Eucharist. He prophesies he's going to give the Eucharist in John chapter 6. And he actually does it, of course, later on at the Last Supper. So the, the other thing he talks about as well, um, when, it, when it says in, in, in the first verse of John 13, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is a really, really important theme in John's gospel, this theme of the hour, the hour. Remember remember the wedding feast at Cana? That ha- that took place way back in chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry. Mary's like, hey, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What hour? And this hour just keeps coming up again and again and again and again throughout the gospel. Well, it's... It's the hour of power, I guess you could say. And now it is there. His hour had come now. It's the hour of his passion, uh, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his glorification. All all of this is kind of wrapped up in his hour, which is unbelievably important in John. So that's a theme that's so big, big, big in the gospel. So... When John says, during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to to betray him. And that's in John chapter 13, verse 2. So this takes place, this whole foot washing thing takes place during the Last Supper, during the context of the Last Supper, when the devil already put it into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. And by the way, there's also a link again back to John 6, when Jesus promised the Eucharist. What did he say in John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71? Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. So now the hour has come. The, The setup has happened. And the fact that they're there, the fact that they're in the upper room, the devil has really encouraged and provoked Judas to betray Christ. So what happens right after that? Well, let's look at the next couple of verses. And you can follow along in your Bible if you have it there. John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. And what did he do next? This is really important for us to understand this. It says, he laid aside his garments and then he girded himself with a towel. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, it's really important that we notice that, that he laid aside his garments. It's so easy to overlook this, but it's really crucial. The word that's translated in your English Bible as laid aside his garments is a very interesting word that John uses again and again and again in his gospel. And what does it mean? It means every time, every other time he uses it, he's talking about laying down his life. Jesus laying down his life. 
John 10, 11, John 10, 15, John 10, 17. He's talking about the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. John 13, 37, John 13, 38, John 15, 13. What, what is this all about? You can look up all those verses, but, but the main point here is that when he's laying aside his garments at the Last Supper, it's kind of like he's laying down his life. It's, a, it's, it's alluding to the fact that he's about to sacrifice his life. And so this is how it kind of connects with the Eucharist. Yeah, John doesn't necessarily mention the very moment when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And there's another question, by the way, that people have, and I got I got an email about this. I'm going to answer this later in the show. Was there even a, was there an actual lamb at the Passover meal, which was the Last Supper? Some people say, no, there was no lamb. Jesus is the lamb. I'm going to deal with that later on. But for now, what you need to know is this idea of laying down his garments, laying aside his garments, that's alluding to the fact that he's about to lay down his mortal body, his mortal life on the cross. So keep, keep that in mind. And then the next thing that happens, of course, Peter, impetuous Peter, hot-headed Peter, brave Peter in a lot of ways. Peter doesn't want him to do this. Surprise, surprise. It says, he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not know now, but afterward, you will understand. You will understand. Hmm. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet, Lord. <laughs> Jesus said, he's, Peter's always telling Jesus what to do. You ever notice that? It's, it's, it's like back at Caesarea Philippi, and this is in, in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus explains how he's going to suffer the passion. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be scourged. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. And then after three days, he'll rise. And Peter says, that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, Lord, I'm, this will never happen to you. So he's always telling Jesus what to do. We have to be very, very careful in our own lives about telling Jesus what to do in our prayer rather than simply submitting to his will, which is, which is always better. But Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. And then Simon Peter says, Lord, well then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. In other words, let's do the full, full Monty here. Let's do the full, just hose me down. And then Jesus said, Jesus says something really interesting back to him in reply. He says, he who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is clean all over. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, you are not all clean. So this is in, again, John chapter 13, verses 6 through 11. So the first thing that was that happened earlier in, in, in the ministry of Jesus is that Peter couldn't comprehend a suffering, a dying, a humiliated Messiah, one who was humiliated by others. And now he seems not to understand how Jesus can humble himself, humiliate himself, if you will, by taking this role, uh, this lowest role on, on, the, on the rung, which is washing feet. This is the, the, a very lowly servant's role. And in that culture, in the first century, in, in the ancient world, in the Middle East, people are walking in the dusty grime, they've got sandals on, their feet need to be washed when they come into the home. That was hospitality, and, and the lowest servant would always do this task. So the fact that Jesus, Messiah, and Lord is doing this, People want to fixate on this being the lesson. People want to fixate on this being the lesson. This is really the meaning of this, that we've got to be willing to take the lowest place. We've got to serve. We've got to do the humble, dirty jobs. And that's all true. 
That's all true. But there's much more to this than what's, what meets the eye. Because Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will later. I think they could understand at that moment that he's doing the act of humble. That's why Peter doesn't want him to do it. He understands that this is a humble servant's task. So he does get that part. They do understand that part, that they should act as Jesus acts and that, and they want to be, they should be servants. But Jesus says something else. He says, no, you guys don't get it. You don't get what I'm doing now, but you will later, after. Well, when would they understand that? When would they get it? And what does he, what, what's the secret message here? I'm going to tell you after this quick break. Got to take a break right now on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. It's Holy Thursday. We'll be right back after this break. Oh, don't you love Gregorian chant? I love it. I absolutely love it. I love the sacred tritium. This is the the pinnacle of the church's liturgical season. It's a season unto itself. Three days, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, concluding, of course, with the Easter vigil. And Easter starts then. And, and it's it's absolutely amazing. My favorite, absolute favorite time in the church's calendar because this is when our salvation uh, took place. And we were talking before the break about the gospel text for tonight for the Mass of the Lord's Supper, which, which is the foot washing in John's gospel in John chapter 13. And one of the things that Jesus said to the apostles and Peter, who had a bit of a problem with this, and Jesus set him straight, Jesus says, hey, what, what I'm doing now, you don't understand right now, but later you will. Afterwards, you will. So, if the meaning of this whole thing was simply that we should be humble servants, uh, we, we need to serve others' needs, we need to be willing to do the dirty work, wash feet, not literally wash feet in the future, although sometimes I guess that happens, but but just to serve one another. that that's That's something that they easily could have understood right then in the moment. So that can't be what he's talking about, because in John's Gospel... It's so mystical. It's There's such high and deep theology there. There's way more going on under the surface than, than we can maybe get at first reading. So there's more to it. And, and what does it really, really mean? Well, Father Raymond Brown, the late Father Raymond Brown, who was a great biblical scholar, and he, he wrote a very, very magisterial commentary on John's Gospel. This is one of the things that he said about this. Uh, when, when Jesus said, what I'm doing you do not know now, but afterward you will understand. This is what uh, Father Raymond Brown said in his commentary. He said, quote, literally after these things, after these things you'll understand. The phrase itself is vague, but the meaning is probably the same as what we saw in chapter 12, verse 16, where it says, at first the disciples did not understand these things, but when Jesus had been glorified, then they recalled that it was precisely these things that had been written about him and these things they had done to him, end of quote. So what, what's he really saying? After, afterwards, you'll understand. He's really saying, after I'm glorified, after the passion, after the resurrection, after the glorification, when I'm at the right hand of the Father, then you'll get it. Then you'll understand that this is much more than just about loving one another, 
serving one another. Although that's true. That's, that's part of the package as well. Not denying that. But again, they could have figured that out on their own. There's something else here. There's a deep spiritual lesson. And another scholar, uh, and his name was Jerome Nere, uh, a Jesuit, uh, Jerome Nere, S.J., he, he says that the foot washing was, he calls it a, quote, status transformation ritual. A status transformation ritual. What, what on earth does that mean? It means that Jesus is, is doing a lot more here than just simply cleaning some dirt off their feet so they can, it's proper etiquette so that they can eat the Passover. No, 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 no. This is transforming their status. Now, this is really important, especially when you you look at what Jesus says says to St. Peter, when he says, Peter, if you don't participate in this, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part in me. No part in me. So basically he says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Now, John, he knows what he's doing here. When he writes this gospel, he's used this word before. And this is a Greek word that's translated in your, in your English Bible as unless. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Think about where he's used this before. Go back to John chapter 3, the famous conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus says, unless a man is born again of water and the Spirit. And by the way, that's a reference to baptism. It's always been understood as a reference to baptism. It's not about... Uh, Saying a prayer, asking Jesus to come into your heart, as wonderful as that is, it's about baptism. Unless you're, unless you're born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter heaven. It's normally necessary to be baptized to enter heaven. Now, of course, there's three kinds of baptism, right? There's water and the Spirit. That's a normal kind. There is, it's not normal, it's supernatural. You know what I'm saying. But there's also baptism of blood, martyrdom. That's the tough way. <laughs> and there's baptism of desire as well. But, but, Baptism is crucial. You got to be baptized. And, and the normative way is water and the Holy Spirit. Then let's go, let's fast forward to John chapter 6. This word comes up again. Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Unless. And so the same thing happens here. Uh, in, in chapter 8, 24, he's, uh, verse 24, he says, You will die in your sins unless. You believe that I am he. Unless you believe I'm the Messiah, unless you believe I'm the divine Messiah, and the divinity of Christ is so huge in John's gospel, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he talks about being, you know, the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, you're the branches. He says in in chapter 15, verse 4, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. You can't, that's where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do some good stuff. No, you can do nothing unless you abide in me, stay connected to me, the true vine. So all this, this word has come up again and again and again in John's gospel. And that's why at the foot washing, when Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. We really need to be paying attention. So, okay. So we're kind of at this point where we need to go back to, to the Old Testament. So un- unless you do this, this is not going to happen to you. So, But if you do let me do this to you, then you will elevate to a new status. Just like if you are baptized, you elevate to a new status. You're now a child of God. You have the supernatural life of grace in you. You have the divine life in you. Uh, if you remain in me, you'll, you'll bear supernatural f- fruit. So 
we need to find out what's on the other side of this. When Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. But if you let me wash you, if you let me wash your feet, then guess what? You are going to have something. You're going to have a, a status transformation. You're going go to go to, to a different level. Now, what is that? What is that? Now, th- this is so, so cool. You, you're going to want to hang with me for this because this just blew my mind. Blew my mind. When you go to the Old Testament, where does it talk about foot washing, this idea of washing your feet? This is, this is wild. This is absolutely wild. King David. Now, King David was a man after God's own heart, but his heart was also, you know, attracted to sin. And that's, that's true for all of us. And of course, David was guilty of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murder. He has her husband, Uriah, who's one of his top soldiers, has him murdered to cover up the fact that David has slept with his wife and got her pregnant. Now, of course, this is how he tried to, tried to hide the, this whole thing, how he tried to cover it up. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, what had happened was David had already slept with Bathsheba. Uriah comes back from the battlefield and he refuses to go home. And David wants him to go home. He has a dinner for him. He tries to ply him with drink. Go home. See your wife. You haven't been home in a while. He says, go, go to your house and wash your feet. He's hoping that he will go back to his wife and have the marital embrace. As you, that's, that's what it means. That's, that's it. Washing your feet in the Old Testament was a euphemism for the marital embrace. Uh, conjugal relations. I, I hope I don't need to spell this out anymore, but y- you get the picture. So this is what happened. David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, but he didn't go home. He slept at the door of David's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his own house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to him, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the Ark of the Covenant and Israel and Judah, they all dwell in tents. They're on the battlefield. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So rather than, <coughs> rather than go home, he, he's so dedicated to the mission he, he, and to the battle, he, he sleeps at the doorway of, of David's house. He won't go home. And David's just doing a face palm like, oh, my goodness, this plan is not working. So the point of all this is that Uriah totally understood what David was asking him to do when he says, go home and wash your feet. And what he was hoping was that they would get together in the biblical sense and that, oh, the child would be, well, it's obviously Uriah, Uriah's child, but, but really it was David's. And so anyways, it doesn't work and he winds up murdering him, which is terrible, but he repents of his, of his evil sin. And that's one of the great things about as we go into this tritium and of course, Good Friday tomorrow, there's no sin that can't be forgiven if we repent, if we repent. And David is, is, of course, proof of that as well. We see it also one more time in the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, it's often called, in the, in the Old Testament. That's, there's a lot of different meanings to this book, too, but we find this lover who's going at, he's pursuing romantically his bride. He knocks on her door at night, and how does she respond to him? This is really interesting, too. She says, oh, I have put off my garment, how could I put it back on? I have bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Very interesting. That's in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 3. So 
here, here we have again this idea of the foot washing as a sort of a, a prelude to the marital embrace. But also, she says, "I have laid laid down my garment. I have put off my garment." What what did Jesus do before the foot washing? He puts off his garment. Interesting, just as Jesus did in the upper room. So. What can we learn from this? Okay, when we look at what it means to wash your feet in the Old Testament, we can really say two things. When do you do this? When you're preparing to what? Become a father. When you're preparing for the marital embrace, you're preparing to reproduce. There's two purposes of marriage. We could say it's the two Bs, right? There's the bonding between the spouses, right? But the but the first one is the baby one, right? Babies and bonding, right? It, it, Folks, they're called your reproductive organs for a reason. So babies and bonding. So when you're preparing for that marital embrace, you're preparing to reproduce, you're preparing to become a father. Keep that in mind. That's when you wash your feet in the Old Testament. Here's another thing. The Day of Atonement, and I, and I mentioned this briefly uh, on the Faith Explained today. The Day of Atonement, incredibly holy day. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the Jews when you read the letter to the Hebrews, it says this is the kind of sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. It talks about how to do it, how to actually carry it out. In Leviticus chapter 16, it talks about Aaron, the high priest. It says, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting. And what does he do? Oh, listen to this. He shall put off the linen garments. He shall take off his garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And then he shall do what? He shall bathe his body in water in a holy place, and then he shall put on his garments and come forth, offer the burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. That's in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. I I don't think this is a coincidence at all, folks. This is exactly the kind of language that John says Jesus was doing in the upper room. Aaron, the high priest, takes off his garments, bathes his body in water, and then he puts his garments back on, and then he makes the atoning sacrifice. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. This is exactly what Jesus does in the exact same order. What does he do? He takes off his garments. He performs the washing, the washing of the feet. Then he puts his garments back on, John says. And then what does he do? He goes to make the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is himself on the cross. That's what the passion is all about. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, a, a coincidence at all that John makes the point of saying he took off his garments, he washed, and then he puts his garments back on again. Now, here's the difference, though. He doesn't wash himself because in the Old Testament, the high priest takes off his clothes, washes himself. But in the upper room, Jesus takes off his garments, but then he doesn't wash himself. He washes the apostles, the apostles' feet. Wow. So what's he trying to say here? What's he trying to say? Well, the rabbis used to argue about this all the time. When the rabbis argued about how to interpret the Old Testament, uh, in the Talmud, in the Jewish Talmud, there's a tract called Tract Yoma. And the rabbis argued in this tract that with, with the Old Testament high priest, once the priest has taken his full bath, he only needs to, from that point, I only needs to worry about whether or not his feet are clean. And what did Jesus say to the apostles? Ah, you know, once you bathe, then you're clean. You only need to worry about your feet. 
Uh, so I, I do think this is in, in view here. I do think this is in view here. So the point of the, here's the secret of the foot washing. In the Old Testament, the high priest washes himself before the sacrifice. Our great high priest, Jesus, in the new covenant, he washes the apostles' feet before the sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that they're sharing in his high priesthood. They're sharing in his high priesthood. This is John saying the apostles are priests. The apostles are priests. And that's that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. You have no part in the priesthood, in the sacred priesthood that I'm giving to you through this. So this is really, really important. So the Council of Trent talked about, hey, when, when Jesus says, do this in commemoration of me, do this in remembrance of me, do the Eucharistic sacrifice, do the Mass, that's when he's constituting the, the new covenant priest. But also I think John adds this whole thing about the foot washing to, to sort of take it from a different angle. So this this is incredible. And that's, that's the sort of different flavor that John brings to the table. And that's why he does it differently. There's one more thing, though, that I need to tell you, but we'll do this right after the break with your questions as well. 888-914-9149. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Be right back. It's exciting, isn't it? On April 21st, our show sponsor, Colby Academy, is hosting a virtual open house where parents can meet with families from across the country and learn how your child can flourish at home. Register at relevantradio.com slash Colby. Hey, welcome back to the program. It's Holy Thursday. You're listening to The K.O. Clark Show, 888 We were talking about how in John's Gospel, he doesn't have an institution narrative of the Eucharist, but he does have the foot washing, and that shows that actually has to do with the priesthood. In the Old Testament, this idea of washing feet, you did that on two occasions. Number one, washing your feet was kind of a euphemism for you're about to become a physical father. Well, Jesus washes the feet of the apostles to show that they're about to become spiritual fathers. And then also, the high priest would take off his garments, wash himself, offer the atoning sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Jesus takes off his garments, but he doesn't wash himself. He washes the apostles' feet. And that he's basically saying, you're sharing in my high priesthood, and I'm going to go out and offer the ultimate sacrifice, the one true atoning sacrifice on the cross. And you get to share in that, in that priesthood, in that sacrifice when you celebrate the Mass. So it's just brilliant by St. John. And it's important for us to know that. There's another scholar, by the way, just, just one last thing real quick, and I'll get to your phone calls. Uh, 888-914-9149 is the number to call. Uh, F.J. Maloney, Francis J. Maloney, a scholar uh, who wrote, he wrote a, a little bit about this in, in uh, a journal called the Catholic Biblical Quarterly. He, he talked about there's, there's something else here that, that gets missed a lot. When St. When John talks about the foot washing, right after this, Jesus talks about how Judas betrayed him. But the, but the way in which Jesus does that is really interesting. He references Psalm 41, when Jesus says, I am not speaking of you all. I know whom I have chosen. It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's in John chapter 13, verse 18. Now, that's really interesting, this reference to Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So mentioning the bread, that clearly gets us thinking about the Eucharist, obviously. 
And just the thought that Judas could consume the Eucharist and then betray the Lord, that, that's a chilling thought. But th- th- it's really cool how John changes this a little bit, because when John's quoting the psalm, he who ate my bread, he, he uses a different word. John changes the word. Uh, he doesn't use the same word from the psalm. He uses a different word, which means not just to eat, but to crunch, to munch, if you will, to really go after it, like you're chewing on something, you know, trying to make some bad sound effects here. But but this is the same word he used back in chapter 6 when Jesus was teaching on, on the Eucharist, the bread of life discourse. And the Greek word is trogon, which means to chew, to gnaw, to really, really chew after it. Okay, so I've heard people say, um, when I receive the Eucharist, you're not supposed to chew it. You're just supposed to let it melt in your mouth kind of thing. Well, I don't know. It's actually not biblical. It says, I mean, if you do that, that's fine. That, that, that's not the point. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. And he uses this, this word to munch, to gnaw. You've really got to eat it. Okay? So that's, that's the word that John uses here. When, he, when he's quoting this psalm, Jesus says, ah, he who really ate my bread, and he uses the same word that he used about the Eucharist. It's clear there's a Eucharistic reference here. It's really, really uh, clear. The link is there with the Eucharist. So this is obviously about the priesthood, about establishing the Eucharist. And just some interesting stuff there uh, from St. John that's often missed. It's a, it's a little bit secret. It's a little under the surface, but that's the depth that we have here. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show, 888 We're going to go to the phones now. Pam is calling from Chicago. Hi, Pam. Hi. Um, I have a question. Um, I wanted to know, if you go to the Saturday night Easter vigil, mm-hmm. do you still need to go to Mass on Sunday morning, on well, Easter Sunday morning? Yeah, a lot of people ask that question, Pam, and the answer is, uh, no, you don't have to, because that, that actually is your Easter Sunday Mass. The, the vigil, just like we have um, uh, Saturday night vigils uh, during the normal church calendar, the vigil Mass counts for Sunday on the Saturday evening. The same is true uh, with the Easter vigil, which begins in the evening. Uh, it's supposed to begin at dark, and there's a sacred fire that's lit. It's it's quite a beautiful. It's the most beautiful liturgy in the church. And if you if you haven't gone to an Easter vigil, if you hadn't hadn't had that opportunity, I, I encourage you to go because even if that's not your regular thing, if you just go once, you know, sometimes people with young children they can't pull that off. But it's such a rich liturgy. It's unbelievable. All the scripture readings going through salvation history. It's amazing. But yes, Pam, uh, that is an Easter liturgy, and that does count for Easter. And it's amazing because then we enter into the octave of Easter, and for the next eight days, it's all one big gigantic Easter Sunday for eight days. It's amazing. Um, So Easter Monday, Easter Tuesday, all that is considered an extension of Easter Sunday. And the reason why that that happens, by the way, these vigil masses, is that in the church, we reckon time the same way uh, that the Jews did in that sundown of the previous day, you know, that, that's considered the, the marker of the day. Then it's the next day. And that's one of the reasons why when it comes to the crucifixion, the death of our Lord, the religious authorities, they wanted the bodies to be buried uh, that were on the crosses. They, want, they needed the bodies to be buried before sundown, before the feast started, the Passover feast. Because if they were left on the tree, it would have as it were, uh, they would have defiled the land, and God would not have accepted the sacrifice. So that's why they came to to Jesus and the, and the other two that were crucified with him, 
And the Gospels tell us that the bones of the other two crucifixion victims were broken. Their legs were broken. And the reason why that happened, by the way, and we're going to learn a little bit more about this tomorrow on Good Friday, is that it hastens death when you're on the cross because it really kills you. When, you, when you're on the cross, you die of asphyxiation. You, you have to push yourself up to breathe. You're hanging there, and just the position that you're in when you're crucified, you have to push yourself up. And imagine the pain, pushing yourself up on those iron spikes to try to catch a breath. Well, if your legs are broken, you can't do that, so you, you die very quickly. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And that's why they didn't break his legs, and that wound up fulfilling a prophecy that none of his bones shall be broken. And a lot of people say, oh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It's the whole swoon theory. It's absolutely preposterous. The Romans, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. They were really good at it. And, and the coup de grace was, if he wasn't dead already, which he was, but they ran the spear through his heart. And so that's, that, that enables John, by the way, in his gospel to tell us that blood and water came out of him, out of the side of him. And, and by the way, um, that is, in fact, an actual medical condition that, that happens. It's when, when you're under incredible physical stress, the beating that Jesus would have taken, the scourging, uh, carrying his cross through the streets, loss of blood. There's a, a medical condition in which it's a sack of what, what's a fluid, which would look like water, builds up around the heart muscle. So when he was uh, pierced by the lance, it would have looked like water coming out. This would have been the, the sack of fluid forming around the heart, followed by an issue of blood. So it really would have looked like, if you're standing at the foot of the cross, water and blood coming out of the side of Christ. And, of course, John says that he saw this, he testifies that it's true, and we know that theologically, the deeper meaning of this is this is a symbol of the Eucharist, and of course also baptism, the sacraments, the church really being born from the side of the second Adam. Just like with the first Adam, Eve was fashioned from his side. Well, the church represented by the sacraments, the bride of Christ, is formed through the, comes from the side of Christ uh, when he's on the cross, when he dies on the cross. So that that is uh, a really important point to make as well. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And uh, we don't have time to take this call, but there's a, another caller on the line, uh, Tom from Cooksville, Tennessee. I'm sorry, Tom, we've run out of time, but I am going to answer your question really quick. His question was, how does the foot washing relate to the husband-wife relationship? Uh, again, as we as we explained earlier, and if you didn't catch the whole show, you can uh, check the podcast later. It should be up about an hour or so after the show. Washing your feet is a euphemism. It's another way of saying uh, have marital relations with your spouse in the Old Testament. That's that's where that comes from. So again, that's that's what you would do when you when you're getting ready to become a physical father. And so this is a, the foot washing in a spiritual sense shows that the apostles were to be spiritual fathers, and, and that's what our priests are. They they do what uh, human fathers do on on the natural level. Uh, you got to generate life. And how do, how do our, our priests do this? Well, God generates the supernatural life, but they, they help him do that, of course, through baptism. The, the womb of the church, that's where we're born again of water and the Holy Spirit. A father feeds his family, right? That's, that's, that's where the Eucharist comes in as well, uh, confecting the Eucharist. They teach. A good father teaches his children. That's what preaching and teaching is all about. And, of course, defending the family. Uh, that's important, an important role of husbands and fathers. And our priests do that. They defend us from false teachings. So pray for them. 
Uh, this is a great day to pray for our priests, our bishops, our own Father Rocky. It's Holy Thursday. It's Kale Clark Show. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy. Our society was built on the concept of I owe God. Now we don't owe God anything. God owes us. We're supposed to be entertained by God. And our civilization is not doing that well, except in those places where people take the holy sacrifice of the Mass seriously. People would say, Father, you should make the Mass more entertaining. And I would say, on the contrary, I'm trying to make it more boring. And they would say, you're doing a fine job. Father Simon says, 1 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio. You know, the word is spreading around America. This is the go-to place if you've got a prayer and you want the whole country praying for it. So I invite people to join us every night for the Family Rosary Cross America Live. 7 p.m. Central. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. Relevant Radio.